Hello everyone and welcome to our first VTX podcast. We are really excited to bring this to you. At VTX we always start by asking what are you thinking and today we're going to be thinking about coronavirus and how that's affecting us all in the veterinary profession and also chatting a bit about how to best manage our diabetic cats, particularly when there's a shortage of PZI or protein zinc insulin. So just to start, I wanted to introduce myself. My name's Scott. I am one of the founders of VTX and I am a European and Royal College recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. Uh, I graduated from Edinburgh Vet School uh, a wee while ago now, and I originally am from Glasgow, which brings me on to introducing one of my oldest friends, Karen, who is going to be our VTX podcast producer. Her job really, I think, is to keep me on track and minimise the waffling. So she's got a job in her hands. Hiya. (laughs) Hello. Hello, Karen. It's exciting. I know, and it's also a bit weird because we are doing this coronavirus style, so we are not in the same room, which is a shame. That was always our plan, but here we are, and we just have to make the best best of a situation. And I think just to, to, I suppose, to let everyone know, moving forward, our vision for the podcast is really to take this on the road. We genuinely want to get out speaking to the veterinary community and asking them what they're thinking. So in the future, once coronavirus is over, we hope to come and um, meet some of you in person. Yes. So let's just talk about VTX for a second. What What is it and what are you guys about? VTX stands for the Veterinary Thought Exchange. And this is an idea that I came up with with my good friend, Liz uh, Bode, who is one of the other founders of VTX. We've done a huge amount of CPD and teaching over the years and we just really wanted to create a CPD company that provided content that was really driven by our members. So Mm. our memberships not only include access to all of our webinars but it also includes discussion forums and advice credits where we can actually talk about real cases that are affecting people every day. And I think that's really what makes us different. This is not just about watching a webinar. This is about watching a webinar and then interacting with us and the rest of the VTX community to talk about things that really matter. Yeah. And it's not always clinical. The predominantly we're, we're talking about clinical things. But we're also wanting to talk about non-clinical aspects of veterinary medicine and we're working with a number of different people to talk about other things that affect us day to day and a lot of that kind of is surrounding wellness and how the profession affects our mental health. So I suppose in a way it's a little bit like a conversation. You've hit the nail on the head. It's all about opening up honest conversation that is non-judgmental, that is, you know, we're, we're all here to help and support each other. I did want to mention coronavirus generally because I think in the veterinary profession we're in a really really unique position we are working on our front line not obviously the front line that the NHS staff are working on but we are working on our own kind of front line and and obviously we need to continue to provide care for the patients that are entrusted to us and I think it's it's hard though because obviously every time 
you leave the house at the moment, you do feel like you're putting yourself at risk. So I think a really important big shout out to veterinary professionals who are mm. continuing to keep our animals safe through this crisis. And we're, yeah, we're so I think we're in an unusual um, and sort of challenging position. A friend of ours, uh, someone who's been very supportive of us online particularly is someone called Katie Ford, who is a veterinary professional but she also has diversified and uh, does a lot of really positive stuff online as far as supporting veterinary professionals uh, and providing coaching in, in lots of different ways. She put up something really interesting, sort of saying, I'm really sad. She's She does some locum veterinary work and, you know, really sad that I'm not getting to go to work because a lot of the locum uh, professionals or veterinary professionals are not needed at, at this time because of staff reductions. And I thought that was really interesting because I had almost the opposite anxiety. I was thinking to myself on the evening before I went back to work, I was thinking to myself, I'm really nervous about this. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm so lucky that I'm able to go to work and I'm still being paid, but I'm nervous because I'm the one leaving the house. I'm the one potentially putting the kids at risk. And I think it, so, so it's, it's such a double-edged sword because, and I spoke to her a little bit about that. And she's like, but, you know, I want to feel like I'm out there helping too. And so it's so difficult. You know, it's so difficult. There's such, such a mixed kind of emotion with the whole thing. Let's get into our clinical topic for the day then. Who sent this one in? So this was a topic I chose because one of our members, Emma, who's also a good friend of mine, had come to me to ask about a situation that we have currently with diabetic cats and the insulin that we have to treat them. Typically, or usually in this in the UK, certainly, the insulin of choice for cats is often PZI or protein zinc insulin. But there is a, not just a UK-wide, but I think a, a worldwide shortage of that insulin at the moment. And her question really was, when you have a diabetic animal that is, you know, nicely stable on a certain insulin like PZI or protein zinc, what do you do when that insulin runs out? And how do you transition onto other insulins? So I really just wanted to, to chat through some of my thoughts about insulin choices in cats. And if you have stable diabetics, how you're going to uh, go about transitioning them onto other uh, types of insulin. So I think just a few kind of ground rules. I, I I just wanted to, we could be here all day talking about um, feline diabetes and we've not got all day. So I've tried to pull out some of the most important points. Firstly, we've always got to keep in mind what the goals of our therapy are. And ultimately, we want to be keeping cats' glucose levels between 5 and 10 millimoles per litre for as much of the day as possible. So that's number one. We want to avoid them going hypoglycemic because that's obviously not a good situation to be in. And overall, keep their glucose as tightly controlled as possible. And I think this is something that I just wanted to mention because it's often kind of not given enough credit. It is actually really, really important that we control cats' blood glucose as tightly as we possibly can, particularly when they're newly diagnosed. Because actually you've got a chance of putting these cats into remission. And what a great thing that would be. You know, you diagnose a cat with diabetes, but actually if you do a really good job of controlling the glucose levels, you might actually get them to be not diabetic in a few months time. 
And certainly that's been really well demonstrated in studies where in some studies, up to 84% of newly diagnosed diabetic cats went into remission if we did a really good job of controlling their blood glucose. The factors fundamentally that affect your chance of getting a cat into remission are low carbohydrate diet. So we must never, ever underestimate the role of diet in these patients and the use of longer acting insulin. And I think that's a really important point. So most of the studies show that the longer acting insulins are going to give you the best chance of tight diabetic control and getting a cat into remission. And really the best long acting insulin that's around is glargine. And most of the studies will say, look, glargine, you are number one. However, we have to take other factors into consideration when we're choosing insulin. And particularly in the UK, we've got to follow our drug regulations. And that is why PZI or protein zinc insulin has really come into favour for cats because it's a licensed veterinary product. Longer acting than can insulin, which is the other licensed product in the UK. And that's why these patients often end up on PZI. So that's kind of some of the ground rules. I also kind of wanted to mention monitoring generally, particularly in this really, really difficult time of coronavirus, where you're maybe not able to get cats or dogs into the clinic to monitor them as much as you normally would. I would encourage you to rethink about the use of home blood glucose monitoring. I think under the right instruction with the right owners, that is a really, really good thing to be thinking about at the moment. And there's lots of really good online resources that people can watch on how to take peripheral ear or pad blood glucose samples from cats. So I would I would really encourage that. I also just wanted to give a really quick mention to blood glucose monitors. So these uh, monitors that that measure the blood glu- the glucose in the subcutaneous fluid. They used to be really expensive and really difficult to access, but actually they're not as difficult to access as they used to be and they're not that expensive, particularly the Freestyle Libra monitors. So some some owners will definitely be able to afford these. Now uh, we're talking about a couple of hundred pounds instead of a couple of thousand pounds. So I would just get you to reconsider the use of these sorts of things. So going on to our main question, my cat's on PZI or protein zinc insulin, the insulin runs out, what am I going to do? So I think there are basically, whittling it down, two main options. The first thing would be to go to the next best licensed product within the UK, and that would be caninsulin. Caninsulin is an intermediate acting insulin, and we know from the studies that overall, it's not going to be as good as controlling diabetes in cats as some of the longer acting insulins. If you do want to transition onto can insulin, you really do just need to do it from one day to the next. So the animal will finish its twice daily dosing of PZI one day and it can start the can insulin the next morning. I would probably recommend starting can insulin at about half a unit per kilogram if the blood glucose is above 20 millimoles per litre most of the time and if the animal's better controlled so the blood glucose is below 20 millimoles per litre I would probably start on 0.25 units 
per kilogram. Although Caninsulinate again is the licensed product, you are going to get better diabetic control with one of the longer acting insulins. So for many of your cats, I do think you should be considering the use of something like Glargine. Glargine is a human long-acting insulin. Um, it comes at a different concentration from the others. So really important, we would use the 100 unit per mil concentration. It has a, a longer duration in various studies between 9 and 24 hours. But certainly the whole point is giving this uh, Glargine twice a day, there is going to be some overlap with the doses, but ultimately that will give you better diabetic control. As far as transitioning, again, you give the PZI one day and you will then start the Glargine the next day. You don't have to have a, a, a gap or a washout period or anything like that. If the dose of the PZI insulin is less than three units total, then I would use the same dose of Glargine. So if you're on one international unit of PZI twice a day, I would transition on to one international unit of Glargine twice a day. If your dose of PZI is three international units or above, then I would probably use a reduced dose of Glargine to begin with. So say if your dose was four international units twice a day, I would probably reduce that by 50% and I would give two international units twice a day to begin with. Now, obviously that can be ramped up if we're not getting good control. So the take-home message there is if it's below three, the PZI dose, then the same dose of Glargine. If it's three or above, then I would reduce the dose initially by 50%. Just to finish the, I suppose, again, thinking about um, monitoring in these tricky times, we mentioned empowering clients to do blood glucose curves at home. Um, and that's certainly something that I think people should consider. Urine testing at home can also be useful. The only, the only time that I think testing or getting owners to dipstick urine at home, the only time I think that that's useful is if you're persistently getting no blood glucose in the urine, we could be a little bit more suspicious that we could be having um, hypoglycemic episodes. There are lots of different ways of doing blood glucose monitoring, looking at blood glucose curves, and I think probably not the kind of thing that we would delve into in this podcast. I wanted to try and keep it really user-friendly and simple. So a very simplified way of using uh, home blood glucose samples for the monitoring of Glargine. As always, clinical signs are one of the key things. So we're always saying, is the cat drinking less? Does the cat have less signs consistent with diabetes? But if owners are not wanting to do extensive blood, blood glucose curves at home, which is totally understandable, then we would get them to take pre-insulin samples. So if you take a pre giving the insulin blood glucose samples, which is consistently above 12 millimoles per litre, then we could recommend increasing the dose by half a unit. If consistently they're getting pre-insulin blood glucose values of between 6 and 12, then I would keep the dose the same. And if consistently you're getting pre-insulin samples of between 3 and 6, 
I would decrease the dose by half uh, an international unit. As always, if the value is below three, then that's the time the, the client should be calling the clinic. So these are pre-giving the insulin blood glucose samples. Above 12, increase the dose by half a unit. Between 6 and 12, keep the dose the same. And between 3 and 6, I would decrease the dose by half a unit. And that's a kind of simplified way of monitoring, particularly in these um, troubling times. Just a little bit of a mention, people worry a little bit about glargine being this different concentration. It is trickier to dose. We need to make sure we're using the right syringes. There are dosing pens that are available for glargine and that might be a way to go for some people. Do not dilute it. You will see some protocols recommending the dilution of glargine. I absolutely don't think that that is a good idea at all. I just wanted to mention um, just at the end here that Detamir, which is the other longer acting insulin that you'll see in some of the studies. The reason basically that if you're not choosing a licensed product like Caninsulin or PZI, Glargine would be my number one choice. Detamir has also been shown to be very effective, but there's just less data on that overall. So I think Glargine, for that reason too, is going to be my number one choice when you know PZI is not available. So we've really just skimmed the surface today of feline diabetes. And if you want more information about this condition, we've got a full two-part webinar series in the webinar section of our website. Okay, so now we're going to do our first edition of Desert Island Drugs. Some of you may be familiar with this from our social media. This is where we choose a particular condition and there are a number of drug options to treat that problem and you can only choose one. So you have to imagine you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can only take one of these drugs with you. And this week we're going to be talking about one of my favourite subjects, which is gastroprotectant medication in dogs and cats. So if you were treating a known gastric ulcer in a dog, which one of these drugs would you choose to treat that? And the drug options are omeprazole, famotidine, ranitidine and sucralfate. The answer really is omeprazole and we would use omeprazole or a proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole at one milligram per kilogram twice a day. And that's going to be the standard of care for gastroduodenal ulceration in dogs and cats. Some of you might say, well, what about sucralfate? There's no evidence to say that using sucralfate in combination with omeprazole is going to do any better a job. So actually, omeprazole on its own is still superior. Ranitidine and famotidine um, are not as good as omeprazole at treating gastroduodenal ulceration. Uh, and ranitidine particularly in some studies was shown to perform just as well as the placebo at changing the gastric acid uh, or changing the pH of the stomach. Ranitidine is really not very good at that at all. Famotidine does do better, but not as well as omeprazole. So fundamentally, that is the drug of choice in this scenario. We've done a whole webinar about gastroprotective medication in dogs and cats and kind of delve into that in a lot more detail. And that's available on our website at www.vtx-cpd.com. And we've actually decided that next week 
we're going to think about omeprazole a little bit more and potentially some of the downsides of that drug. So we're saying omeprazole is great for the treatment of gastroduodenal ulceration, but what are some of the problems surrounding the use of that medication? We'll also be back with another edition of Desert Island Drugs. And in the meantime, please remember to head over to our website for more information about everything we're doing. And please remember to like, follow and share on our social media platforms. We appreciate the support very much. Thank you for listening and see you next week.